Good morning, everyone. If you have your Bibles, please open up to Titus chapter 1. And we are going to continue to walk through Titus chapter 1. And we began a couple of weeks ago. And we started at verse 1. And this morning we are going to be in Titus 1, verses 9 through 16. So to recap, just a little bit of where we were last week. Last week we talked about the fundamentals of the faith. So Titus wrote to Paul and he said, he said um, I want you to consider the true faith, what it is. And so we looked at the, the covenant, the, the grace covenant statement of faith. And then we talked a little bit about the selection of elders. So we looked at verses 6 through 8 and talked about the requirements for the selection of elders. So this morning we're going to get into three things. Now let me ask you, were there notes back there? Does anyone have notes from this? We might have had a miscommunication. So there were some notes, which apparently are not provided. But nevertheless, if you're taking notes, we're going to talk about three things this morning. The first one is the responsibility of elders. That's found in verse 9. The second thing we're going to talk about is there are three groups in Crete that Titus was told, you're going to have to rebuke these groups. And the third thing we're going to look at is the stark contrast between believers and unbelievers. So those are the three things we're going to look at. Let's read now verses 9 through 16, and then we will dive in. So verse 9, an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not teach. Verse 12, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. In verse 13, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Verse 14, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, I thank you for this opportunity to be here this morning. I pray that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to the truth that you have laid down for us in Titus. I pray that this would impact our minds and our hearts, and I pray that it would impact the way we walk and the way we live. And I pray that you would do a work here, not only in our church, but also in South Charlotte and the Charlotte area that we can't contemplate, we can't predict, we can't plan or orchestrate. We just pray that you would move in our midst, Lord, and help conform us to the image of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so the first thing we're going to talk about is the responsibility of elders. So let's take a deep dive into verse 9. And this is really, really important. Verse 9, an elder must, number one, hold firm 
to the trustworthy word as taught. So hold firm to the trustworthy word. On December 10, 1967, there was a plane crash that killed singer Otis Redding and every single person in his band, except for one. That was the trumpet player and his name was Ben Cauley. The plane went down in Lake Monona, which was outside of Madison, Wisconsin. Cauley, who did not know how to swim, clung very tightly to the seat cushion on the airplane. He held on to that seat cushion for 17 minutes until rescuers arrived. 17 minutes. For Cauley, think about this. Think if you're in that position. You're going to hold fast to that seat cushion. Am I right? Because if not, you're going down. And for Cauley, it was literally a matter of life or death. And I don't think it's an exaggeration for me to say that we need to cling to Scripture like you would a seat cushion if your plane went down in a body of water. It's that important. We need to cling to the Word. And I don't think this is just a requirement for elders. It's not just a good idea for elders. It's a great idea for all of us to cling to God's Word like this. The Grace Covenant Statement of Faith, which we talked about last week, says this about the Bible. It's the inspired Word without error. It's the complete revelation of God's will and the only infallible guide for faith and living. So the question is, do we believe that? Because if we believe that, we're going to cling to God's Word. And that's number one. So an elder must, number one, hold firm to the trustworthy Word taught. And the second thing that's told that elders must do is give instruction in sound doctrine. Verse 9, hold fast to the trustworthy Word so that you may give instruction to sound doctrine. Friends, this is repeated so often in Titus that if we do not do this, we are frankly disobedient. Please note, we talked about this multiple times, but the first time I was with you, verse, chapter 1, verse 1, Titus was told what you're doing in the context of the local body do for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Chapter 2, verse 1, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And here again, hold firm to the trustworthy word and give instruction in sound doctrine. This same command, literally, three times in 17 verses. For so long, many in the evangelical church <clears throat> have focused on the felt needs of religious consumers. Or we've used attractional methodologies to try and big, or build big churches and draw crowds. We've followed church growth strategies, almost every fad imaginable, every trend imaginable. There, there's literally, if you think about this, one thing that we may not have really done, and that is what Paul is specifically telling us to do right here, and that is to focus our teaching on sound doctrine. Now, I have to say, Grace Covenant is doing that. I wanted to exhibit A right here, this book. Everyone look at, look at this book. Pastor Lee is walking us through this book at the 9 o'clock Sunday school hour. So if you're able to make it to that hour, please come and join us because we've had some great discussions 
on 52 vital doctrines of scripture that are simplified and explained. So if you have an opportunity to be with us at nine o'clock, please come. Um, so we're doing that here, and I'm very grateful and thankful to say that. Um, but we've done everything in the church at large, except for this, focusing on sound doctrine. Listen to what A.W. Tozer wrote about this. <coughs> Religious entertainment is in many places rapidly crowding out the serious things of God. Do you know that? Religious entertainment is crowding out the serious things of God. Many churches, Tozer continued, have become little more than poor theaters where fifth-rate producers peddle their shoddy wares. Friends were commanded to give instruction to sound doctrine over and over and over again. Now here's the irony of this. There may be some sitting here today even who think this. Many people in the church believe this. You cannot grow a church by doing this, by focusing on the apostles' teaching, by focusing on sound music and worship. And <clears throat> my observation is that you, you actually can grow a church because there are many churches that are actually doing this that are growing in the United States right now. There are many churches that are doing this. In fact, I saw an um, op-ed piece in the New York Times written by a young lady by the name of Tara Burton. I'll wait for the sirens to go back. Uh, this young lady wrote this opinion piece in the New York Times. It was called Weird Christianity. Now think with me about this, this young lady. And she said, more and more young Christians are disillusioned by the spiritual emptiness that defines modern America. And they're finding solace in decidedly anti-modern vision of the faith. What's she saying? Like, we want to go back to something that's true, that's substantive, that's real. And she said, many of us call ourselves weird Christians, albeit partly in jest, what we have in common is that we see a return to old-school worship as a way of escaping the crisis of modernity. Weird Christians, she continues, reject as overly accommodationist those churches, primarily mainline Protestant denominations like Episcopal and Lutheran, that have watered down the more supernatural elements of the faith like miracles and the literal, res literal resurrection of Christ. <laughs> And listen to this. This is the most important part of the article. Weird Christians are finding that ancient theology can better answer contemporary problems than any modern secular worldly solutions. I'll read that again because I think that's very profound. This young lady said, ancient theology can better answer contemporary problems than any modern secular worldly solutions. And you know, I actually believe that. That's one of the reasons I'm standing here today and why I want to preach through Titus verse by verse, line by line, because I believe that. This responsibility is given to elders, and thankfully, Grace Covenant is doing that here. The third thing that elders are required to do from verse 9 is to rebuke those who contradict. To rebuke those who contradict. This responsibility is something that as an elder, a pastor, a bishop, synonymous terms, we cannot shrink back from. To know the word, to teach the word, and to contradict those who teach false doctrine, the job of, a, of an elder is not easy. 
Pray for your elders. Pray for your leaders. Because they have these responsibilities given to them in Scripture. And far too many in our day and age are abdicating these responsibilities. Elders, and really all of us, but we need to take a stand on right doctrine. And if we're not willing to do that, then we should not serve as an elder. All Christians must be willing to swim against the stream, but especially elders. If everyone, everyone in the church is going one way, make sure it's the right way. And if it's not, be prepared to go the other way. I've taught students in student ministry for years and years and years, and one thing I always tell them is, you must be prepared to walk alone. Because if you see everyone doing something and it's not the right thing, you cannot do that, and you must be willing to stand alone, even if it makes you look different. Okay, so that is the three responsibilities given to elders. To hold firm to the word to instruct other people, and then to rebuke those who are not following the trustworthy word. The second thing I want you to see are the three particular groups that Paul wrote to Titus. You're going to have to rebuke these groups. So let's look at that in verse 10. For there are many, and the first group is, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. That's the first group. Empty talkers, insubordinate, and deceivers. Insubordination. Let's talk about that for a minute. These are people who refuse to respect authority. And are there a lot of people like that in our midst? Hopefully not in our immediate midst. But in our midst outside of these doors, our culture is one of insubordination and a lack of respect. The first time I remember hearing the phrase insubordination or the word, I was in middle school. And I remember, I don't think I even knew what it meant exactly, but I knew it was like this catch-all crime that if you committed, you would get sent to the principal's office. And I didn't want to find out what the consequence was, so I really tried to walk the straight and narrow, not always successfully. But in our culture, we live in this culture of insubordinate and disrespectful people. People are disrespectful, think about this, to parents, politicians, Pastors, police, teachers. It's one of the hallmarks of our society. Disrespect of authority. In this passage, Paul tells Titus, you're going to have to deal with those people in your midst that are insubordinate. And, and as part of that first group, we also said insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. Let's talk about empty talkers for a second. This is from verse 10. Empty talkers are people who just love to talk and there's no substance to what they're talking about. They're not teaching or sharing scripture, except maybe to argue. Empty talkers make trivial little distinctions about uncontested issues, things that no one's even raising a question about. Empty talkers might be super hyped, overly emotional presentations. You hear it in some pulpits or at some churches. But when you take a step back and you consider what has this person actually said, they really haven't said anything. Sometimes I think when I watch someone preach on TV, for instance, if I were to get a transcript of what that person said and I were to totally divorce their words 
from the hype and the light show and all the music and I just read what they said, all the applause lines and all the overly emotional content of the topic, it would make very little sense to us if we were just reading what that very gifted communicator talked about. This is empty talkers and Paul here is told, told Titus, you're going to have to rebuke these. And then deceivers. We know what deceivers are. Deceivers are people who you just can't trust them. So apparently the, the church in Crete was filled with people that just couldn't be trusted. That's the first group of people. The second group of people Paul tells Titus you're going to have to rebuke are those of the, look at verse 10, circumcision party. Verse 10, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. So there is actually some overlap between the empty talkers and the deceivers and the circumcision party, but because they were such an opponent to Paul, almost everywhere he went, I thought I would break them out separately. The circumcision party are the Judaizers. These are Jewish Christians who added to the simplicity of the gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They would attach additional weights to people, additional requirements for salvation, like circumcision or following the Old Covenant law. If you will recall last week, we talked about what Grace Covenant believes about salvation, and that is a very simple message. That is, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Anyone who adds to this, Paul tells Titus, you must silence those people. Verse 11, they must be, what does it say there? Silenced. And then, and then Paul goes on to write, they're upsetting whole families. So whatever they're teaching, it is not leading to what we talked about last week, which is grace and peace. Remember in verse 4 of Titus chapter 1, the salutation was, um, grace and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And what these people are teaching is not leading to that. It's leading to upsetting whole families. And that is because, in verse 11, they're teaching for shameful gain. I, I, I might circle shameful gain in my copy of the Bible, what they ought not teach. And this is one of the defining characteristics of false teachers right here. Follow the money trail. Second Peter chapter 2, or verse 2 says it this way, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, and in their greed, they will exploit you. In their greed, they're going to exploit you. Do we see that today? Yeah, we see this. This is all around us today. The prosperity gospel message is one that largely consists of greed and materialism wrapped up in Scripture. That's what that is. And unfortunately, the United States is exporting this to other countries. So that's the second group. We're supposed to rebuke those of the circumcision party. And then the third group, Paul tells Titus, you're going to have to rebuke are the Cretans. So look with me at verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, so this is a poet who had written some, some contemporary poetry back in the day, and Paul's basically saying what this guy says is true. And what that was is Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, 
and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So let's talk about the Cretans. Now, I have to tell you, these things, as I read this, this could be said of the United States of America in 2024. Did anyone sort of think that as we were reading this? Um, always liars, like a lot of deceptive people around, evil and lazy, gluttonous people. This could be said about us. Liars, again, we just can't trust them. The Cretans are always liars. They're people that are not trustworthy. They have not allowed the grace of God to change their lives. Evil beasts is the next way he describes them. Evil beasts, Matthew Henry's commentary says, these are called evil beasts because they're sly hurtfulness and their savage nature. So these are savage people. Whatever they do, they're not doing with the care and concern of others in mind. They're savage in nature. And then the third way he describes the Cretans is lazy gluttons. Let's break this down a little bit because this is one of those things that I think really hits home. First of all, lazy. Laziness and sloth. There is a whole generation of young men that this could describe perfectly. I was looking at a statistic the other day, and in 2022, between the ages of 15 and 24, young men spend an average of four hours a day playing video games. Now that's an average, so that means there's some that are spending eight, and there's some that are spending zero. But what a waste of time that is. How slothful is that? The labor force participation rate, Exhibit B, the, the rate of men who have dropped out of the labor force has doubled in 30 years. So right now we have almost 12% of all men between the ages of 25 and 54 who are not even looking for work, according to the labor force participation rate. That's why I say laziness and sloth, this could be written to us. And, and it might not be video games or dropping out of the labor force participation rate for you. It might be movies. It might be excessive or inordinate amount of time spent on social media or watching Netflix videos or whatever. The idea is, and what Paul's saying is, we need to pay attention to this, that we don't live slothful lives. We're not lazy. Here's a, here's a couple of application points. <clears throat> Number one, young men. Consider the time that you're spending on these frivolous pursuits. It could be gaming. It could be gambling. It could be watching sports. Consider the time. I would ask you to consider Psalm 90, verse 12, where the psalmist wrote, Help us number our days that we may obtain a heart of wisdom. Like, this is a theology of time that we need to pay attention to because we are only given so many days. Young men, number your days. Parents, parents, continue to put reasonable restrictions on your kids. Like limits on the amount of time you let them play video games. 
allow video games to be played, but maybe as a reward for other productive things that your kids are doing. Now, are kids going to push back against that? I see people nodding. Are people going to push back against that? Are kids going to push back? Yes, that's their responsibility to push back. But as parents, it's our responsibility to keep those boundaries in place and hold fast to them. Young ladies, young ladies, if you're dating someone and you see these character traits, they don't, you're, you're, the guy you're dating doesn't want to work, playing video games till all, all hours of the night, I have one word for you, run. It's not getting any better. You know, I've talked to a lot of young married couples and one of the main things young married couples argue about is video games. The times that their, their husbands, men, grown boys, spend playing video games. It's a big problem with newly married couples. So young, don't get in that predicament, young ladies. Like find someone who's actively living out right now and demonstrating Christian character. All right, that's enough for sloth and laziness. Now, the second thing is gluttony. Now, this is one of the things about teaching through Scripture verse by verse. It's like you can't dodge things you don't, you'd rather not talk about, okay? This is sort of like my Johnny Cash moment, all right? So Johnny Cash wrote that song, Man in Black. I would love to wear a rainbow every day and tell the world that everything's okay. But until I start to make, a, or still things start to make right, you'll never wear, see me wear a suit of white. So I'm going to walk through this. So gluttony. Gluttony is everywhere. Would you agree? That's a defining characteristic of our society. Gluttony is everywhere. Some have called it America's most tolerated sin. I saw that on a, on a Desiring God, God blog. It's a, it's, it's a very tolerated sin. It's one we do not talk about. So here's, here's what gluttony is. I looked up the definition for our benefit. I'm preaching to myself as well. Eating or drinking to excess or beyond reason. Obsessive love of food or material pleasure. That's gluttony. Number three, eating when you're not hungry and anticipating eating with a preoccupation. So it's like I think about constantly what my next meal is going to be. And, and, I, and I dare say, yesterday was South Carolina's primary. I hope you realize that no politician can do anything about some of the greatest problems we face in our culture. And those are gluttony and sloth. No one can do anything about those things. In fact, most of these problems that we see are, are of our own doing and our own making. So like the healthcare crisis, for instance. I would love to hear a politician when asked, what are you gonna do about the healthcare crisis? I would love to hear someone just once say, there's nothing that I can do about that. That's a, entirely a problem that you created on your own and you're the only one that can solve it. And is that not true? If we, take, if we ask medical professionals this, they're gonna nod their heads in agreement and they're going to say, self-control will go a long way to solve some of the problems that we face. The healthcare crisis in America is one of the most predictable, preventable crises we've ever had. Benjamin Franklin said this once in his memoirs. Taxes are indeed very heavy, but we are taxed twice as much by our idleness, three times as much by our pride, and four times as much by our folly. That's what Paul's saying here. The, the Cretans 
were characteristic of sloth and laziness and gluttony, and hopefully we are not like them. So let's talk about some takeaways from this section. If you struggle in these areas, first and foremost, first and foremost, if you struggle with gluttony or sloth, consider naming them as sin. Because until we take a realistic, realistic appraisal of the situation, we're not going to see any change. So consider labeling it as sin. Consider journaling and repenting of sin, sloth and gluttony. Number two, take these to God and ask Him to give you conviction to change. Number three, ask for strength in times of weakness. Second Corinthians, my strength is made perfect in weakness. When I am weak, then I am strong. And then last is a practical application. Consider one of the best, the best ways to combat the sin of gluttony is fasting. Jesus said in Matthew 6, when you fast. So the idea is, this is a normative Christian experience, fasting. And what is fasting? Fasting is taking a little bit of time to deprive yourself of something that you crave. That's why it's the perfect antidote against gluttony. All right, let's look finally, verses 15 and 16, at the stark contrast between the godly and the ungodly. The stark contrast. Let's look at verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So let's break that down. First of, first of all, the stark contrast between the godly and ungodly, the godly. Verse 15, the first phrase, to the pure, all things are pure. Now I looked that up in the Living Bible and I really liked the paraphrase that was listed there, so let me read that for you. A person who is of a pure heart looks for goodness and purity in everything. It's sort of like Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, pure, whatever is lovely, think on these things. These things, pure things, are what believers make it their business to be about, to think about, to read about, and to converse about. This is the stark difference between believers and unbelievers. To the pure, all things are pure. But let's continue reading in verse 15. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are, what does it say there? Defiled. The Living Bible paraphrase for that second half of the verse, but a person whose own heart is evil and untrusting looks for and finds evil in everything. For his dirty mind and rebellious heart color all he sees and hears. So the application here is, nine times out of ten, we are all going to find exactly what we're looking for. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. <clears throat> 
Verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. So there are people that no matter what they profess to believe, the proof is in the pudding, it's their lives that may be devoted to the works of the flesh. And the works of the flesh are set out in Galatians 5, 19 through 21, as sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, and then he adds, and things like this. The pure, all things are pure, but to the undefiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. And please understand one thing, there's no middle ground. Like he said, this is, it's either A or B. Paul didn't give us C, like people who are sometimes pure and sometimes defiled. It's either or. Now here's the most interesting paradox of all, and we're gonna close with this. We can't do this in our own strength. We cannot make ourselves pure and undefiled. We cannot will ourselves to be pure and undefiled. Do you realize that? How many people start out January 1st with a resolution? How long do most resolutions typically last? Like two weeks, three weeks? We cannot will ourselves to do this. This is the paradox. Romans 3 says, There is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3, 23, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Isaiah 64, All of our works are as filthy rags. Like, we cannot muster up the self-discipline to do the things that Paul's telling us we have to do here. That's the paradox. The only purity we can have or hope to have comes from Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He became sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. That is the reason He came, to pay the penalty for our sin and to begin the process of transforming us to make us more like Him. So Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. We don't deserve it, but it's imputed to us so that we can be called the children of God. And this is really the gospel message. And this is what Paul was telling Titus, that there's this connection between right belief and right living. And if you will look with me one more time at Titus chapter 2, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all, and the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So in conclusion, what Paul is telling Titus here is that you have to rebuke these groups essentially because they've not allowed the grace of God to transform them in the way that Titus chapter 2, verse 12 says, training us to renounce ungodliness. So I want to thank you very much for the time that we've had together this morning. Let me pray for us, and then we will close. God, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for how clear it is, and I thank you for the requirements are so clear. And I just pray that you would convict in our hearts the things that we need to hear and the changes that we need to make. And we thank you for giving us the grace to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.